0: I'm going to tell you a story this morning as we start from the Bible. It's a story that's set in the book of Acts. Acts is essentially the story of the early church, first three years of the church. And it's going to be a story of a guy named Paul, who was one of the early founders of the church. And I'm going to read the story to you and then talk a little bit about the the scene he was... The, the environment he was in. But essentially, Paul's at a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus, right now, is a pile of stones. At the time, it was sort of the seat of Greek intellectual life. It was a place where criminal cases were decided, but it was also a place where people simply gathered and they, and they talked. And Paul is there almost by default. See, he had been going throughout. Greece and um, speaking in synagogues and speaking street corner and sort of building churches wherever he went and he kept getting in trouble and so he was thrown out of two places and the those who were with him said okay Paul just go to Athens it's not in there read between the lines and and stay out of trouble could you just stay out of trouble for a little while so he's loitering in the Areopagus and this is what happens and I'm reading in first. Uh, I'm reading in Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see if the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to discuss with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athen- There's a bit of hyperbole in this next sentence. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul has started to speak. And he's about he's about to deliver to them a, a message. But here's the, the, the scene in which he is speaking. He's in ancient Athens. and The Greek... Uh, Greek society had a lot of gods. I mean, a lot of gods. They had gods, really, for every occasion. And over years, it had gotten bigger and bigger, and there was this vast lineage of gods because they saw gods as gods of specific things. And so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, over time, they sort of narrowed it down to the Big 12, The big 12, the Olympians, and these are the ones you've heard of, you know, Zeus and Aphrodite and Poseidon and all those, the big 12. They became the the centerpiece, the pantheon of the Greek gods. Now again, over time, which happened over and over again, these 12, then people started to develop subcults and offshoots, and so once again, you have this proliferation of all sorts of smaller gods. And then one other god came into play. And this god was simply called the unknown god. And the un- there are stories and there may be myths, who knows, about how the concept of the unknown god came about. But essentially it was this, because in Greek society, the gods all had specific roles. And so you prayed to Poseidon for this one and you prayed to Apollo for this one. The unknown god became the catch-all god. So if you had something you needed to ask for and you didn't know who to ask, well, there was the unknown god this sort of vague God out there that you spoke to. And the Greek is antone agnostone. It's what we got the word agnostic from. So it's, I'm going to pray in the name of the unknown. What happened was, as Paul is standing in Athens and he sees all the idols around the city, you know, in a, an altar to a, a Apollo and to Zeus and all that, then he also sees the one, To an unknown God. And I really think something snapped for Paul at that point. And what the passage says in Acts is Paul, when he saw this, became greatly distressed. It really bothered him when he looked at it. He was supposed to be just hanging out in Athens, not causing any trouble, but he was so distressed by what he saw that he started to speak. And in starting to speak, he was then placed in the Areopagus where he spoke and delivered a message about this concept of an altar. To an unknown God. Now, why was he distressed? What, in essence, was the core of it? I think it was this Paul had found for himself, and he believed it was important for everyone, he had found a concrete spirituality. He'd found a view of God that was not vague and sort of fuzzy around the edges. He'd found a view of God that was solid, practical, and personal. And as he stood in the center of Athens, he saw two things. People were searching. He says to them, I see that you are very religious in every way. He saw that people were searching. They were literally begging for something more. They were trying awfully hard. They were trying so hard that they just kept building up God after God. They were trying so hard that they even created an unknown God to fill in all the other gaps that they couldn't quite fill in. So they were searching, literally begging for an answer for something. And what they had gotten at the end of all that search was a vague sense of deity without any personal connection. This distressed him the contrast between what he had found and what he believed to be true, which was that there was a God who was not vague, not a loose spirituality, but there was a God who was actually for him and with him and in him, a God for whom he was designed. The contrast between that and a vague sense of spirituality with no personal connection was so stark that he almost had to speak. He wasn't supposed to say anything. He couldn't keep it in because the contrast was so great. In this series, <clears> the <throat> Monkey, we're asking questions about impact in the world. Why would I want to have impact? How would I have impact? A couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week actually, I, I said we don't even really address in some ways the question of why do we want to have impact because it seems to be so deeply ingrained in us, a desire to live beyond ourselves, and yet there are real complications with that. And uh, in desiring impact to make a difference somewhere, all sorts of questions arise about how we're going to do that and what would it look like in this world. Here's the reality of this passage. The reason we have impact is not in many ways because we venture out into some strange and unknown territory and work our you-know-what's off. The reason we have impact there's two reasons. One, because people are actually searching, we're not offering something that people are not looking for. And two, the reality of a relationship with God for our own lives almost makes it impossible not to speak. In the passage you looked at last week, which we're going to look at again today, in uh, First Peter, chapter three, and, and Peter was another early founder of the church, and he's writing this letter. To the churches, and he says this But set apart Christ, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope you possess. There's something about this passage that just so intrigues me. And at the core of it, I think, is this somebody's asking. The only reason, Peter's writing, if you have not read the Bible much, I'd like you to know this the Bible isn't vague spiritual sayings. It is teaching written in context of people's actual lives. The actual lives of people at the time that Peter was writing was they weren't going that well. They were living in a time where they were pressed on every side. And as they had come into a relationship with Jesus, they were getting persecution for that. And yet what this passage begs us to see is that in the midst of a really hard time in their lives, others were asking them questions. Somebody was walking up to him and saying, what is it about you that allows you to live with so much hope in the midst of a dark time? What, what is it? I promise you, vague spirituality doesn't get any questions asked. Before I became a Christian, I was an atheist. Before I became an atheist, I had a vague notion of spirituality such that I would have thought, there's probably something out there. I don't know who or what or why or if it has any role in my life, but there's probably something out there. There was not a single person who ever walked up to me and said, Bruce, could you please tell me, what is it in you that causes you to live the way you did? And I would say, I have a vague sense that there might be something out there, and I don't know that it has any influence whatsoever in my life. How's that? Vague spirituality does nothing for us and doesn't get any questions asked either. Christianity is concrete. There's something that's so solid about it that Peter says he's having to give people equipment for living in the midst of their times to say, look, I know lots of people are talking to you. They're asking you about the hope that's in you. So I want you to be ready to talk to them about it in the midst of the difficulty of your life, something is so powerfully positive about you that people are going to be asking questions. What is that? Hope. Actual hope. Not vague, wishful thinking. Hope. As I defined it last week, hope is the realistic expectation of future good. And last week, as I talked about hope, I broke it down into essentially a couple, three different ways that you could look at how, how hope practically looks like in our life for somebody who's in a relationship with God. And it's one that we, God gives us a sense of wisdom about how to live, which makes it more likely for us to have a preferable future. God also applies forgiveness to our life in such a way that our past and our present won't derail us. God also takes hold of our life in such a way that we have a destiny or a purpose, and so there is a forward trajectory to our lives. And all that's true, but... One question is begged below that, which I want to talk about this week. There is a grounding or an anchor below those practical pieces of hope that is the real force that influences our life for hope and gets people asking. And that's what the beginning of 1 Peter 3.15 says. But set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. The foundation of hope You and I living with a contagious sense of hope that has people asking questions is this concrete sense that Jesus is at the core and at the center of our life and influences everything. That little phrase, set apart, in the Bible, when you see a word translate, when you see something like sacred or holy, often it's taking the words set apart and translating that as sacred or holy. Because what set apart is, it means I'm going to take something and I'm going to make it discernibly different and unique and set apart as distinct. And what Peter says is, this is what I want you to do. If you will make Christ, your relationship with him, this distinct, central element of your lives, it will birth hope. When it births hope, other people will Notice. When other people will notice, they will ask you questions. If I could be, and I can because I have the microphone, if I could be blunt, I think too often we live in the midst of the American Christian-ish society a lot like the Greeks did. A vague spirituality without enough personal connection. Uh, there was a Christian, the, uh, Christian theologian, that makes sense. There was a Chinese theologian named Watchman Nee, whose works you must read with great discernment because pieces of them are brilliant and other pieces are a little woo-hoo. And there was one part that just has struck me. I read it years ago in a book called The Spiritual Man. And he says this, we think of God as a pharmacist dispensing little packets of grace. God, I'm struggling with impatience. Can you give me a little bit of patience? God, I'm, I'm struggling with loving, with learning to forgive people. Can, can you give me a little bit of forgiveness? Watch when he said we walk to God as a, as a pharmacist. And when we, have, when we have a specific need in our life of, you know, small or large, we go, hey, God, I need a, I'm, I'm running short in this. My medicine cabinet is not full. Can you give me a little bit of that? and that'll take care of that issue. Thanks, appreciate it. Now I'm going to go on my way until I have another need, and then I'll come and I'll get you for that, okay? And what he says is that God is not a pharmacist dispensing packets of grace. He gives you himself. He doesn't give you fine-tuning. He gives you himself. A relationship with Jesus is supposed to change all of your life. But it does so by you receiving him, not individual pieces of advice. There is brilliant advice throughout the Bible, but the core of a life lived with hope is one that does not have a vague spirituality. It has a concrete connection with the God who breathes and births hope into every moment of our life. Now, when you see that and you contrast it to what Paul was experiencing, he was saying, I I used to have a vague spirituality of doing right and wrong, and if I did enough right, I'd probably be okay. And, you know, I, I just had a vague sort of spirituality of rules and regulations. And now I realize that God came to earth and laid down his life not just to forgive me, but to give me a relationship with him that can fuel all of my life. I have hope because I am not alone. I have hope because God has grasped a hold of my life. I have hope because the person I was created to live in connection with, my God in heaven, I now do. And then he walks into this seat of learning and and wisdom in ancient grief, and they're sort of like, I don't know, got no idea who God is but I can maybe throw some requests out there to the God I do not know and perhaps get some pieces of my life fixed. And so he spoke. I guess the question that I would ask each one of us is, is our hope vague or concrete? Is your relationship with God this loose amalgamation of thoughts and advice? Or is it a concrete hope centered in a person who lives at the very core of your life? If you want to impact the world, Vague won't cut it. it won't cut it for you, and it won't cut it for anyone else. You've got to dispense with the Vague. I sort of grew up in the church. And by sort of, I mean I went twice a year. Christmas, Eve, not Christmas. Christmas, Eve, and Easter. And in those years, I pretty much wrote it off. Because I could never get any sense of what the point was. I did have a question. My question was, why are these people wasting their time? And I'm not being facetious. I don't mean to be funny when I say that. It's actually what I thought. My thought was, why are these people here? This is a, just a vague conglomeration of loosely held beliefs. And, and, and you know what? I may have been wrong. I, I may have been wrong. I only can tell you what I felt and what I experienced. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian, not because somebody was telling me, there's this vague sense of God out there who might be loosely interested in your life and you can throw prayers out to him is because someone told me there is a God who sees you, knows you, who designed you for himself, who will not simply forgive you, but is going to come into the center of your life and remake you to the person you were always meant to be, such that you can live with beauty and purpose and hope and joy. Once I discovered that that was actually true, there's no vague Christianity is not vague. Maybe many things. It's not vague. If you are coming here today and you wonder what Christianity is about, this is it. Christianity is a relationship that you were designed for. That God made you for himself, that you may well have wandered from that relationship, and he sent his only son Jesus to die for your sins, the things you have gone astray on, to forgive you, And to bring you back into relationship with Him now and forever. Christianity is a relationship with God that has been gained for you by Jesus. And Christians are those who say, I want that and I ask for it. And so live their life in connection with God. There's no vague. I think sometimes we think we like to live in dichotomies. We don't like to, we tend to. And one of the Christian dichotomies has, has been this, okay? And this is very much how it felt to me after I became a Christian, very much. Okay, I understood that Jesus forgave me. I have a relationship with him now. That seems good, okay? I have God in my life. That's, this is a really good thing. And then immediately I, I saw passages in the Bible and I heard people talk about how it should have impact in the world. And so I thought was, okay, I better go do something. Something, I better get out there and, you know, win the world and all that. Uh, Some of you bought into that as well. And at this point in your life, you're just tired. You also realize you got kids to raise or school to take care of or a mortgage to pay or (laughs) relational issues, and you're just tired because all you see of Christianity is, I got forgiven way back there i got a whole life I have to deal with, and I'm supposed to go make an impact. (sighs) Got to fit that in somewhere. And with a good heart, you're just tired. It's not really Christianity. Uh, Jesus, in this passage in John 15, which we're not going to put up, I'm going to talk to you about it more over succeeding weeks, but he talks about what the heart of what a Christian life looks like, which is, living in such a close connection with God that we almost can't help but have an impact. We don't separate it in between, okay, I got to learn about God over here and read my Bible and stuff, and I got to have an impact over here somewhere, and these dichotomous separate ex- existences compartmentalized life. He talks about us living in connection with himself so deeply and so pervasively that impact simply flows out of us. But set Christ apart As Lord, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. If you want to impact the world, vague won't cut it. If you want to impact the world, you have to ask the question, where is my relationship with God now? Vague or concrete and meaningful? This week... This is what I'd like you to do. I want you to read, if you would, 1 Peter 3.15, the passage we just had up there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, but you have a computer, you actually do have a Bible uh, then, but you can also get a Bible back there. But if you have a computer and you go to BibleGateway.com or YouVersion.com, and you'll have a Bible like that. And read 1 Peter 3.15. And simply ask yourself the question, Do I have vague or do I have concrete? Concrete, deep relationship with Jesus is the key to you experiencing hope. That concrete relationship with Jesus and hope is the key to you making an impact in the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you will teach us to start with where you do, which is you desiring to make us very alive, filled with hope because of our connection with you. And I pray out of that, you will fuel us to live in a influential way simply because of what's going on in our own lives. I pray for everyone in the room today. It is my deep desire that everyone would be compelled that you long to see them experience hope in very practical ways. I pray for those who are going through difficult times now that the sense of your presence and the wisdom you offer them would buoy their hearts and their souls with hope. And Lord, make us people who are not trying somehow to impact the world, but who are contagious because of what you're doing in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to this time of response, we begin it with our offering, which is a way for us to remind ourselves that God moves into our life. He brings us hope. And out of that, we have something to offer a world that's searching.